Welcome to the Ace Tip Podcast, where we translate science into sense, so you can learn about research in the justice and health fields without having to access or read a lengthy journal article or report. I'm Danielle Rudes, your host, and I'll do most of the work for you. All you have to do is listen. ACED is a cool and super helpful product brought to you by the NIDA-funded Justice Community Opioid Innovation Network, or JCOIN, through the Coordination and Translation Center, CTC, housed at the Center for Advancing Correctional Excellence, ACE, at George Mason University. For more information, check out jcoinctc.org. Now, let's get started. Heart disease, asthma, hypertension, diabetes, and opioid addiction are all, generally, chronic conditions. Meaning, if you experience any of these problems, you wouldn't expect to walk into a doctor's office, get some medicine, take the medicine for a week, and then be cured. In fact, you might not expect to be cured at all. They all require ongoing treatment, sometimes for life. Because with all of these conditions, there are periods of exacerbation and periods of remission but the underlying vulnerability never goes away. Like with cancer, opioid dependence is a product of the body turning against itself. A highly respected and impactful journal called Biology Psychiatry recently dedicated a special issue to discuss what scientists know about how opioids affect the brain, why opioids impact different people differently, and how medication works to treat opioid use disorder. The way in which opioids affect the body's cells is complicated, and there is much that we still don't understand, but scientists continue to develop innovative ways to learn more about the interactions between opioids and the human body. And with this knowledge comes new understandings of ways to combat the scourge of opioids. The neuroscience of opioids is far outside the scope of a 10-minute podcast, but to put it very simply, when a person ingests or injects an opioid, those opioids bind to and activate certain receptors on brain cells, spinal cord cells, and cells and other organs in the body, especially those related to feelings of pain and pleasure. Once bound to the cell, the opioids then block pain signals sent from the brain to the body and release large amounts of a chemical messenger called dopamine, which is most often associated with feelings of pleasure. Of course, as with most things, the deeper you dive into understanding what is happening at the micro level when a person uses opioids, the more complicated the picture becomes and quite frankly requires an advanced understanding of neuroscience. But without getting bogged down in organic chemistry, we can still take a look at what the scientists are saying and what they're studying. This special journal issue overviews what we know about opioids and how they affect our brains. This includes what's happening in our cells when we take opioids, how it impacts our synapses or the regions between cells, and how it impacts our neural pathways. The first two articles review the questions, how exactly do opioid receptors influence the information that is taken from the surface of a cell to which it binds to the nucleus of that cell? And what exactly is happening at the cellular level when the opioid receptors tell the body not to feel pain or not to breathe or to take more opioids? We want to understand this because knowing this could help us develop medications that have a greater therapeutic effect without the negative effect. And this is not just aspirational. 
there are promising new pain relief compounds being developed right now as a result of this work. The third and fourth articles review what we know about how opioids might cause persistent changes in the brain. Article three focuses on the impact of opioids on the DNA of affected neurons. Yes, opioids actually change the DNA of our cells. Article four asks the same question, but focuses on the impact of opioids on our brain synapses or the space between cells where messages are passed. Not every brain has the same propensity to develop an opioid addiction. So understanding how opioids hijack circuits that regulate behavior, emotions, and thoughts is important to help us prevent and treat opioid use disorders. The fifth, sixth, and seventh articles explore how opioids impact our various neural circuits or the pathways in our brain that regulate our emotion. These articles ask how negative emotions develop with the use of opioids and how these negative emotions affect relapse and maintaining compulsive opioid use. For example, Dr. George Kuhn explains the three cycles of opioid addiction, which include binge intoxication, followed by withdrawal, negative effect, and then preoccupation, anticipation. Dr. Kuhn explains that when the chemical reactions that produce a euphoric feeling wear off, it leaves behind a spate of negative physical, emotional, and psychological symptoms. One such symptom is hyperalgesia, or a lower threshold for pain. Those who use opioids also experience exacerbated pain. These negative physical symptoms interact with hyper-negative emotional symptoms called hypercatophia and with a reduced ability to experience pleasure or hypohedonia. And this interaction triggers the brain to crave and seek out more opioids. And these cravings aren't something a person can just switch off. These cravings are more than just desiring or wanting something. Like, for example, your desire to have a piece of chocolate cake. They are the product of having your brain rewired. The cravings actually control the person, including how they feel both physically and emotionally, what they desire, and what they do. Opioids rewire the brain's reward-seeking circuits, its systems for stress and pain and breathing. And what's more, these changes to the brain can last more than a year after a person has stopped taking opioids. And some of the neurological changes that occur as a result of opioid use may last much longer than that. How quickly an opioid use disorder forms and how severe it becomes varies by biological, environmental, and psychological factors. The symptoms of opioid withdrawal and the drug-seeking signals they produce might start off weaker or stronger, depending on a person's individual physiology. For many people, that signal quickly overtakes normal functioning. For others, it takes longer. But once that signal has been hijacked, the person will almost certainly require medical intervention. And that is the subject of the special issue's last article. There are three current medications demonstrated to be effective for opioid use disorder. And if you are listening to this podcast, you've likely heard of them. They are methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. Methadone and buprenorphine act by suppressing opioid withdrawal symptoms and reducing the effects of other opioids. Naltrexone blocks the effect of opioid agonists. Generally, what we know is that oral methadone has the strongest evidence for effectiveness. 
and that longer durations of treatment lead to better outcomes, meaning fewer overdoses and improved quality of life across many measures. We also know that treatment for opioid use disorders are often limited by poor adherence to treatment recommendations, high rates of relapse, and increased risk of overdose after leaving treatment. Treatment with methadone and buprenorphine has the additional risk of diversion and misuse of medication. But despite the issues associated with medications for opioid use disorder, they are necessary to treat the chronic condition. Yet all medication-assisted treatment is limited by lack of access and by stigma. While scientists in lab use sci-fi sounding equipment like nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy or fancy computational approaches like molecular dynamics simulations or genetically modified mouse models or gene sequencing technologies to study how opioids change our cells' DNA, interact with our synapses, and hijack our neural circuitry. When it comes to actually treating individuals with opioid use disorder, that cutting-edge research can seem a world away. There is a dearth of professionals trained in addiction medicine, and substance abuse disorders carry a stigma even within the medical community. A doctor doesn't determine the presence or severity of an opioid use disorder by looking at opioid levels in a person's blood or urine. They measure it by assessing a number of symptoms, which you can see listed in the one pager that goes along with this podcast. The thing that should stand out is how different the symptoms are as compared to symptoms of, say, asthma or diabetes. The symptoms aren't things like pain in leg, dry skin. They are almost all related to behavior, things like the individual keeps using despite, quote, failure to fulfill major role obligations at work, school, or home, unquote. Or they continue to use, quote, despite having persistent or recurrent social or interpersonal problems caused or exacerbated by the effects of opioids, unquote. Problem behaviors like pill popping are symptoms of a medical condition, but these symptoms often leave a wake of harm in their path. And this lack of understanding of the neurobiology of opioids leads those in the general public, those who suffer from opioid use disorders, their families, and those who work with individuals with opioid use disorders, such as criminal legal and medical professionals, to wrestle with what exactly is an illness a moral failing. But does this mean that we all need to become educated in neuroscience? Do we need to know what cyclic adenosine monophosphate means? Do we all have to learn the difference between an alpha amino 3 hydroxy 5 methyl 4 blah, 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 blah receptor is in order to reduce the stigma around opioid use disorder? No, we don't. But knowing what's going on in the world of neuroscience and addiction helps us see it for what it is, a chronic condition requiring ongoing treatment, sometimes for life, and a world of care. That wraps another episode of the Aced It podcast. We thank you for listening to Aced It, where we translate science into sense. Also remember, you can find one-page summary overviews written in plain language and short knowledge bursts, which are 30-second overviews, for all the research we cover on this podcast on our website, www.jcoinctc.org. Our conveniently packaged research summaries may help you remember what you heard here. And 
They will help you translate this research to your staff, friends, students, or colleagues. Additionally, we'd like to thank NIDA, Dr. Faye Taxman, and all the students and staff at ACE, including our podcast mastermind doctoral candidate, Shannon Magnuson, who is the brainchild behind this podcast. Oh, wait, two more quick things. If you're a researcher and you'd like us to consider using one of your research articles or reports for an upcoming podcast, please send it to me, Danielle, at d-r-u-d-e-s at gmu.edu. If you'd like to support our podcast to keep the sense coming, please tell your friends and colleagues about us or assign this podcast to your students or staff. Thanks again, and please tune in again soon for another informative episode of the ACE Dip Podcast, Translating Science into Sense.